Some weeks ago, I gave one sermon, uh, which was supposedly the start of a series, and other things have come into play since then, and I did not get back to it, but I want to today. And that is the premise that uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, are our fathers and Joseph, and that God said that we need to look to them uh, to see what they did, and go therefore and do likewise. I want to turn for a moment, I'll do a little review here since it's been so long, uh, and, and pick this up and hopefully carry it on through now. But I want to go to Zechariah 1, which is a decidedly an end-time prophecy regarding the time when uh, the church will be rebuilt uh, as per Haggai and Zechariah, and that the two witnesses and the remnant of God's people will be doing that. And he opens this book, which actually began to be written right in the middle of the book of Haggai. Haggai was writing and preaching his message, and Zechariah began his right in the middle of it. So Zechariah came right out of Haggai. But the part I want to focus on a little bit here is in chapter 1. It says in verse 2, The Eternal has been sore displeased with your fathers. Now, he's not talking here about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and so on, because they're listed in Hebrews 11 as those who were faithful and who will be a part of the kingdom of God. But some of our other fathers back there, kings and leaders, if you call them that, of Israel, uh, were not something that were pleasing to God. So when it says, turn our hearts to our fathers, we need to be sure which fathers we're talking about. Therefore say you to them, thus says the eternal of hosts, turn you to me, says the eternal of hosts, and I will turn to you, says the eternal of hosts. Jeremiah says the same thing, only he says, turn with your whole heart, and when you do, I will turn to you. So this is written to the end-time church, a church which by and large has considered itself the, the uh, Philadelphia church, and therefore not in need of repentance. So if you were to read these words to most of the church today, it would fall on deaf ears, because they do not consider themselves in this category. They're Philadelphians with no problem, and there are no problems in their own eyes. So it is only to those who have an ear to hear and eyes to see that it would do any good whatsoever to read these scriptures. It says, consider Israel. Consider, and since this is to the end time church, consider your fathers in the church. So even those leaders in worldwide, we have to look at. And certainly we have some today who have taken worldwide away, and it is withered on its own vine, who are not turning to God, in fact turned away from God. Be not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Turn you now from your evil ways, and from your evil doings, but they did not hear, nor hearken to me, says the Eternal. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Well, no. Those men died. So did the prophets who preached to them. But they live on, don't they? Zechariah being one of those who wrote, but died after he wrote this. But he lives on right here for us to read. His message God preserved for us. This message wasn't for those people Zechariah was writing to in that day. 
for the most part. Yes, it was to a degree. But he spoke to them. The reason it was written was for us. Because we can't hear Zechariah. He's dead. So he says, but my words, those things that Zechariah and the others wrote, and my statutes, which I commanded my servants the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? Didn't the prophecies grab them by the neck when they didn't do what God said to do? And they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts thought to do to us, according to our ways and according to our doings, so has he dealt with us. So he says, God will deal with you as you live, by what you do. Ezekiel makes that very plain in Ezekiel 33, and of course it's plain throughout the Bible. So if we're going to examine the lives of those in the past, uh, in this series I want to deal primarily with those who were faithful fathers. Those are the ones that will do us some good if we will follow their example. Yeah, we could go through all the ones who did evil, uh, and it might be a little negative and discouraging. <clears throat> but I want to look at those who did well. And even they had problems. Even they were very human, even as we are very human. And we'll see that as we go through these accounts. And I think that we should take actually courage and confidence and hope from that in that they themselves had difficulties such as we have. They did not live perfect lives. There's only one who did. So God has written some of the good attributes, but he's also written some of the bad things that some of these people did uh, so that we might learn and hear and fear God. So he did direct us to see what our fathers did. Now let's go back then to Genesis 11, and I'll kind of go back over this ground a little bit. Uh, we had a sermonette just now about the promised land, and they, which made a few comparisons between the Middle East and the land we live in today, uh, and that is part of this story. Now, I may spend some time as we go through the beginning of the life of Abraham and, and even on down the line somewhat uh, in showing where all this occurred. And I don't want the series to become just that, because we're here to look at the character and the lives of these people. But if you're going to examine a story, isn't it nice to know the setting? Where it is, and what happened, and why it happened, and why it happened there. And if you are associated with those, isn't it nice to know where that is? And... It's not just me, but I think we'll see as we go through these chapters that God makes the place a very prominent part of the story. It's not a side issue. It is a very important part that God mentions several times as we go through it. So I, I hope that I'm not emphasizing something more than God did, but I think it's important we have somewhat a new concept. And that is that this is the land of Ephraim, and it is the major part of the promised land. 
and therefore these stories have to be involved with it. It can be no other way. As he said in the sermonette, a land where you can mine iron and copper. One of the biggest copper mines on earth, if not the biggest, is right up here in northern Utah. Uh, there are tremendous iron mines around Lake Superior. We have a county here in southern Utah named Iron County. Wonder how it came by that name. Well, there are iron mines. So this land is blessed with incredible resources. Where was the California gold rush? Jordan? Syria? Israel? No, it was right here. Where was the Alaska gold rush? Right here in this land. There's another end-time gold rush coming. I wonder where it's going to be. No, I don't wonder. I think I know. And we'll find out pretty soon. Anyway, this is a land that is certainly blessed. Now, uh, Abram was born to uh, his father, Tira, in chapter in the chapter 11. And they went into the land of Canaan in the verse 31. And in chapter 12, then, it says, Now the Eternal had said to Abram, Get you out of your country, and from your kindred, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I'm going to show you a land. And he had a great purpose in that. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Now, this was not referring to during Abram's life, was it? It couldn't be, because while he was here on the earth, living and walking and talking, he was not a great nation, and he was not a great blessing to the whole world. Remember, notice verse 3. I will bless them that bless you, and curse him that curses you. And in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. So he's speaking here of a time far in the future when Abram's seed would become a great nation and that if anybody cursed that nation, they would themselves be cursed. And if they blessed that nation, they would be blessed. So if we're going to look at the end time, what will we look for? We will look for a nation that affects for good or for bad, the rest of the world. It has to be, then, a prominent leading nation, a nation in which all families of the earth be blessed. Now I ask you, is that Syria? Is that Egypt? Is that the land we call Israel? Look at the world scene. Is the whole world blessed of the little nation of Israel? Is it a leader? Is it a great nation that has seed like the seashore, like the sands of the sea, or like counting the stars, as we'll see a little later on? No, it's a very small nation with a very small population, with very, very few natural resources, and certainly not a land that you would say this is a bountiful, promised land. Well, where do you have to go to find such a nation? 
Would it be India? No. Where is it? Who gives foreign aid? Who is the customer for the rest of the world that causes them to become rich? As Revelation 17 and 18 show. There's only one. The same nation that Jeremiah calls the hammer of the whole world. Who would you describe as the hammer today? There's only one nation that fits that description. It has to be here. All right, let's move on down a little bit. Um, verse 5, Abram put Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. So God said, I'm going to show you a land I'm going to give you. And they went into Canaan. Now it's a matter of establishing where Canaan is, isn't it? Because that's where he went. Uh, verse 7, the Eternal appeared to Abram and said, To your seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar to the Eternal who appeared to him. So, let's put this together. He went into the land of Canaan, and God told him, To your seed, to those who come after you, when you become as the sand of the sea, will I give this land. So all we have to do to find out where that is, it's very simple. All we have to do is find the seed of Abraham, the Israelites, and find out where they are. And when you figure out where they are, you found the promised land. Now remember that God in Jeremiah 31 said that he would make uh, Ephraim the firstborn. Well, Reuben was the firstborn. But God changed it. He said, I'm going to make Ephraim my firstborn. And what goes with being firstborn? Double portion. Double portion of inheritance. So the land of Ephraim will be at least double in blessing and natural resources and of, you know, milk and honey and cattle and everything else of the rest of Israel. Look at the geopolitical situation today. And who has far more than any other of the tribes of Israel? You know, you can go to Numbers, I think it's 33, 17, I wrote that down here somewhere. Where did I write that? Oh, it's, I wrote it back in Genesis 49. But it says there that there would be thousands of Manasseh and tens of thousands of Ephraim. Truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. That's Genesis 48:19, And then in Deuteronomy 33:17, it says tens of thousands of Ephraim and thousands of Manasseh. All right, so if you determine... Ephraim and Manasseh, the United States and Great Britain, which I think is correct, where do you find tens of thousands as opposed to thousands? Right here. It becomes a no-brainer, really, doesn't it? Ephraim's the firstborn, and we'll have double the blessing, double the portion. 
And certainly we are a multitude of nations, or 50 uh, nation-states that have given their sovereignty over to one federal government. Actually two, but we won't get into that. So he says, to your seed will I give this land. So it had to be that Canaan was in the land that Ephraim would have at the end time. All right, 12.10, let's see. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. Well, wherever Abraham was, or Abram at this time was, it wasn't very far to Egypt. And he walked in Egypt near the land of Canaan. So where was Egypt in that day? Wherever Abraham was, or Abram. Now, they had a famine there, and I kind of went over this last time. I'm not going to go through it all, but remember the story where uh, Abram had this beautiful wife named Sarai, and he was afraid that the Egyptians would want her. So he said, tell them you're my sister, not my wife. And when we addressed this last time, I, I thought, well, can you justify this? Was it a lie? In a way, it wasn't. Um, she was his half-sister. Um, so he could say sister, and it was only half a lie. It was partly true. But on one way, it wasn't true. Half of her <laughs> wasn't his sister. But I got thinking about this a little bit this morning. How did this make Sarah feel? Or Sarai, as her name still was. Because Abram realized that if he said, this is my sister, they probably would take her. He was just afraid if he said, it's my wife, they'd kill him and take her anyway. So he figured it's better, if, if they're going to take her regardless, it's better that they take her and I live than if they take her and I die. This is called human reasoning. And I'll bet it made Sarai feel really, really good, don't you? He's going to lie to save his butt and send me to the Egyptians. Where is my defender? Where's my hero? I mean, we, we look at this from Abram's standpoint sometimes, and maybe we need to turn around and look at it from poor Sarai's standpoint. Was it fair? Was it right? I don't think you could justify that. I'll bet Sarai couldn't justify it. I'll bet she's mad as a wet hen. You're trying to save yourself, and you're turning me over to them. I'll bet she had an attitude. That'd be my guess. Now, she turned out to be a faithful wife in Hebrews 11, and the women are to look to Sarai. But she wasn't Sarai yet, and he wasn't Abraham yet. But then that didn't make an entirely different situation because he did this later on when he was Abraham. Did it again. I bet she was really ticked the second time. We'll, we'll get there later. But I think we need to realize that as he, even as these per people turned out to be faithful servants of God, they did still have their problems. And when they got in a tight place, um, they sometimes lied. 
they sometimes did things they should not have done. Now, he would have been far more noble had he said, you're my wife, I'm going to stand up for you, and I'm going to tell them you're my wife, and God will protect me, and he'll protect you if I trust in him. Now, wouldn't that have been a better way to approach it and then leave it in God's hands? But, you know, sometimes we're awfully security conscious or conscious. And it's kind of hard to leave ourselves in God's hands and perhaps even hard to leave ourselves in our husband's hands. But we need to trust God. And if we have a husband that is trustworthy, to be able to trust him and not necessarily take things into our own hands. Sarah did that later on. And it did not work out too well for her. So we have to take the good and the bad and the ugly uh, together. And sometimes it is pretty ugly. Anyway, I don't think that she could justify his uh, position. And I don't know that we necessarily can here either. Well, it wasn't entirely a lie the half-truth, or half-lie, whichever way you want to put it. And it was not outgoing concern for her, so much of it was, I'm going to save myself. So, we find ourselves in those positions, and sometimes we have to take the right road. Now, how's it going to be? We're here as the bride of Christ. We're here as his engaged partner, engaged in the process that leads to the marriage of the Lamb. Now, this is, in his, his case, he won't lie. In his case, he will defend his bride. What about us? Are we going to be willing to stand up for him? We have an example here where the husband didn't stand up for the wife. But the wife, in this end time, needs to be ready to stand up for the husband. Who can stand when he appears? Those who have stood before he appeared will be the ones that stand. Can we put our trust and our belief in him? You know, the world is out here getting prepared for bad times, and some of them are stocking up on guns and ammo. Some are stocking up on lots of food. I don't necessarily think that's a wrong premise. Joseph certainly was asked to stock up during the good years. And it does say in Proverbs that we're to look for the ant and to lay up for the winter and for hard times or for famine. So that in itself is not a wrong principle. But those who are doing that, for the most part, are not looking to God they're looking to themselves. And I firmly believe that the time will come when it won't matter how many guns they have or how much food they've laid up, if they don't have God for their protector, it's not going to be good for them at all. We cannot preserve and protect ourselves. Because God says there will come a time when we have to flee for our very lives and he is our only protection. Now, are we willing to stand up and trust him now? 
that he will take care of us. We should obey him in every way, as husbands and wives, as Christians, do everything to serve God. Now we have to stand up for Christ. And that's where the women need to be deeply concerned. There is a time, and comes a time, when a husband will not obey God and will not listen to God in his work. What is a woman to do? It is very, very difficult for a woman to stand against her husband when he is wrong. God says obey God rather than man. And you have both a physical husband and a spiritual one. Now, which comes first? You must always place your spiritual head first. It's very, very hard to do. I said it a few weeks ago, and I'll say it again. They have programs on TV where there are even abusive husbands who beat them physically and emotionally and are drunk and have all kinds of problems, drug problems, you name it. And the women keep going back to them and getting beat again and abused again. Now those are extreme cases, but there's emotional abuse and spiritual abuse too. And women in God's church need to be very careful that they do not allow themselves to be abused to the point they can't serve God in the way that he wants to be served. And he even made, 1 Corinthians 7, allowance for him calling the woman or the husband and the other not allowing them to obey God in the way they think they should. And God says, you can depart and you are not bound and you can remarry only in the church because he is the one who calls and no man can come except the spirit of the Father drawing. So he takes that upon himself if he only calls one. And sometimes you have both in the church and one is called and the other one isn't. One has the spirit of God and the other doesn't. They may think they're converted and aren't. You only know by the fruits. And if the fruits aren't there, then there's some decisions have to be made. Well, I follow this husband or wife who does not have the fruits of the Holy Spirit just because they're my physical mate. The answer is no, you do not have to, and in fact, you'd better not. You'd better stand up for your spiritual head and your soon-to-be husband. Place him first. Because the spiritual always trumps the physical. Always. Sarah had to learn that. And Abram had to learn that. Anyway, we go on down to chapter 13. Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. So wherever this promised land was, whatever continent it happened to be on, and in the environs that he had grown up in, there had to be access to silver, to gold, and much cattle, and the provender with grass, pasture, to take care of much cattle. So if we're looking for the promised land and the land that Abraham walked with his own feet, we'd better find the land rich in 
cattle and gold and silver. That's part of the equation. So you, you just have to put the Bible together as it is and believe it as it reads. And if an area of the world does not fit what the Bible says, then we've either got to question the place or we've got to question the Bible. One of the two. Now, I believe the Bible is the living Word of God. So when it says things like this, and I can't fit that, there's no, or no uh, copper or iron mines in Israel, in the Middle East. If you want to start a sand mine, you might do pretty good. But not these other things. So which is right? That spot or this word? I believe Abraham had a lot of gold and silver and cattle. I believe that. It says so right here. So he had to be someplace he could obtain those things. They didn't have 747s in those days. They did come to have sailing ships that went all over the world. I think we can prove that. Okay, let's go on. Uh, I'll pick it up down in verse 7. Well, verse 6. Lot and Abraham had a problem because they had so many cattle and so many servants that it got to the place that uh, the herdsmen were fighting over the grass because they wanted, Lot's men wanted the best for their cattle and Abraham's or Abram's men wanted the best for his cattle. Now, how are you going to solve this? Well, Abram was strong and powerful and he knew God at this point. Uh, he could have maybe wiped out Lot and his family so he'd have all the graves to himself. Or he could have said, I'll take the best. You get out of here and go find yourself another place to live. How did Abram handle this? We're to look to our fathers. Abram said to Lot, verse 8, Let there be no strife. I pray you between me and you and between my herdmen and your herdmen, for we be brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself, I pray you, from me. If you'll take the left hand, I'll go to the right. If you depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now he did tell Lot, you need to get out of here. But he said it doesn't matter. If you go this way, fine. If you go that way, fine. I won't follow you. I won't bug you. Uh, you go where you want, and I'll go the other way. So he was really very fair about it. He did take the bull by the horns and say, this is the way it has to be, so that we can have peace. See, peace is a very important goal. That's one of the fruits of God's Spirit, is peace. Galatians 5. And God does tell us, and Paul said, if it be possible, live peaceably with all men. Now, Paul recognized it was an uphill battle, didn't he? Or he wouldn't have put it in quite that way. It is very, very difficult to please everybody and to have peace with everybody. It's almost impossible. 
But he said, if it is possible, make peace one way or the other. Abraham or Abram looked at the situation and he said, let's not fight. Let's have peace. And in this case, the only way we can have peace is if we separate. It's the only way it's going to come. Because the conditions that created the strife would have remained. So he looked at it analytically, logically, and said, we got to split. And then he tried to find an amicable way to do it. So there's a good example for us when we have difficulties and problems. And really that's the way they handle it in the New Testament, isn't it? If there was one that insisted on sinning in a certain way, like 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said, split the sheets, depart, disfellowship, put him over here, you stay over here. Because righteousness and sin could not dwell together. Well, that's the way it was handled in the New Testament as well, in the church. was if someone was disagreeable, negative, then they would be asked if they didn't choose on their own to find peace by going somewhere else. They were asked to go somewhere else. Because peace is a fruit of the Spirit of God. And we need to find a way to have peace. So here was a good example by a man who became the father of the faithful to make peace whatever the cost might be. Now, it would have been nice had they been able to stay together and live peaceably, but the conditions just, just simply did not allow that. So, you deal with the conditions as they are. I think the church is that way now, isn't it? Since it's been scattered, we have lots of choices. We can't live peaceably here, we can go there. Can't live peaceably there, we can go somewhere else. We don't disfellowship anybody now from the church particularly because you can't do that, can you? Because they can go somewhere else and be acceptable. Unless and until their true colors begin to show again. But sometimes it's a matter of people maybe not being able to grow and overcome in a certain climate. And don't we all need to grow and overcome? So sometimes it isn't a bad thing to separate from one group and go to another because there you might be able to grow, overcome and be what you ought to be. We have to look at those circumstances. Now to say you have to be in this group or you are bad, I can't find room for that. Is everything here perfect? No. Am I perfect? Far from it. So if people cannot grow under these circumstances and hearing what they hear here, then they need to go somewhere where they can grow. Why be in a negative, bad attitude? Go somewhere you can be happy. Abram and Lot couldn't be happy together because of the circumstances, so it was time for someone to go elsewhere. Abram said, I'm staying here, you go. And whichever way you go, I'll give you space. That's what it amounted to. So it wasn't that Lot was necessarily a bad person, was it? 
It's that the circumstance was bad. So he didn't mark him in that sense as being a bad person. He just said, if we're going to live in peace, which we would like, doesn't everybody like peace? We all do. We like it to be peaceful. Then we have to do something here in order to cause and create peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peace is not a natural situation with mankind. Peace has to be made. War happens. Fighting, division, all those things are generic to human nature. They just are there, germane, I should say, to human nature. They're just part of the package. But love and joy and peace have to be made. You have to do certain things to have those conditions. And if someone is not willing to do that, then they need to go somewhere where they can find someone they can have peace with and where they can grow and overcome and change. So no, this is not the only church of God on earth. This is a congregation of the church of God. It was named that way on purpose. So we would not single ourselves out as the congregation of God or the only church of God or the, you know, pick a name, the church of the perfect firstborn or whatever they pick out because we like to pat ourselves on the back and make ourselves look as good as possible. I would say of myself, I'm marginally a part of a congregation of the church of God. If you think that you are nearly righteous, you don't know God very well. And you're not very cognizant of your own shortcomings because each and every one of us falls short, far short, of being like God. Now that shouldn't make us discouraged necessarily. We just need to understand our frame. Christ came to this earth not misunderstanding human nature, understanding it, but also wanting to come here and experience it so that as our high priest, he would learn by the things that he suffered here and have a better idea when it comes judgment time what to say to the Father. You know, that one? I know there's questions there, but, you know, I was there. And I had the same problem in my heart and mind and my feelings that that one does. Please have mercy on that one. I'm sure glad he came here. I'm sure glad he experienced what he experienced. So that we, who just work at, but fall very far, far short of being what God was, can have hope. And we can see that Abram lied, and Sarai had different attitudes later on. But God rescued them out of them all. He made things right, and everything turned out right for them. And he went ahead and fulfilled his promises to Abraham. So they had problems, but look how they dealt with them. Abram and Lot. Uh, 
settle the situation. Lot chose the best, that which appeared to be like the Garden of the Eternal, in verse 10, well watered everywhere before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. The area around Sodom and Gomorrah must have been actually pretty pleasant in this context. Now, where do they say Sodom and Gomorrah were in the Middle East? Down on the south end of the Dead Sea. And I'll tell you what, you can get real thirsty just getting from one plant to the next one down there. It is a barren land. It is a waste, howling desert. Well, now, how does he make this comparison of Sodom and Gomorrah being like the Garden of the Eternal in a well-watered land? In the context of Bible itself, it's different than what is portrayed in the Middle East. Very different. See, once you begin to recognize something, it just leaps off the page everywhere you go. Like when we began to study Zion as a place of refuge and the place where God would bring his people and they would sing in the heights of Zion and on and on it goes. Once you began to do a word study of Zion, it just leaped off the page that that's where God was going to protect his people. It wasn't Petra. That's what some Protestants thought. God, as far as we know, never protected his people over there in that area of Jordan known as Petra today. And in fact, from our view of history, they went north to Pella, not south to Petra in 70 A.D., if it was even over there. But the point is, they didn't go to Petra. They went somewhere else. So why did we think Petra was a place of safety? because Herbert Armstrong read it in a Protestant commentary somewhere and thought, well, that must be. But it isn't supported by Scripture. I think we all know that. Well, let's keep an open mind, too. If Zion is here, which I believe it is, how did it get here? <laughs> and what would be near it? And if it was to be a wonderful land, full of everything we'd need, then how could it be over there? See, it just doesn't fit the Bible story. So, verse 12, Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. Verse 14, the Eternal said to Abram, now he's, he's dwelling here where? In the land of Canaan, verse 12. He said to him, Lift up now your eyes and look from the place where you are. That was in the land of Canaan. Look northward, southward, eastward, and westward. Everywhere from the land of Canaan where you are standing, I am going to give you all the lands which you see. To you will I give it and to your seed forever. Now that part, and to your seed forever, is vitally important to the story. Because Abram could have been standing anywhere, looking every direction, and we would not have a reading or a clue as to what that meant. 
But when he said, I'll give it to your seed forever, and I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, then it means a time when there would be a lot of the seed of Abraham, and they would be in that same land with Canaan as the center, going every direction from there. Okay? So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall your seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land and the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it to you. As far as you walk, whatever you see will be part of the promised land that I will give to your seed. Where are his seed today? Are they in that land over there in the Middle East? No. Mostly Arabs, isn't it? As far as he could walk, as far as he could see, mostly Arabs. Few Jews and Edomite Jews in one little tiny spot. Now we'll see another scripture here in a little bit. I don't know if we'll get to it today. We might. Where it talks, I'll give you from... Yeah, we might get to it. Well, while I'm making the point... Uh, here it is in 1518. To your seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now that clicks in, doesn't it? Well, that has to be from the Nile River in Egypt, as we know it, to the river Euphrates over in the middle, in the Syria, or Iraq, that area. Okay. When has Israel inhabited from the Nile River to the Euphrates in the Middle East? Never. The Egyptians have always been down where the Nile is, as far as we see in history. And who was up around Babylon on the Euphrates? The Assyrians. The Persians were in that general neighborhood. And today, it's a land that is owned and overrun by Arabs. Now, if he gave them from the Nile to the Euphrates, and is talking about the Middle East, why aren't we living there today, and why don't we have from the Nile to the Euphrates? We don't. We aren't. There's nobody over there hardly that even looks like an Israelite or speaks like an Israelite. It just hasn't happened that way. Well, either these prophecies didn't come true, or we haven't understood them. Now, which is it? I believe God. I believe his prophecies have and will come to pass. Therefore, I must have misunderstood Herbert Armstrong understood a certain amount. He understood that we're Israel. He thought he understood that we were Manasseh and Great Britain was Ephraim. But when I look at the scriptures and I look at what's happened since, I think he had Joseph right, but he had the brothers reversed. Of course, that's a problem that even their father had messed up. Jacob. Isaac said no. I want them this way. No, but this is the older. No, I want them this way. The younger brother. Who's younger? This nation or Great Britain? 
who has the most people by ten times? America or Great Britain? He had it reversed. We have had far more blessings, double portion, than has Manasseh or Britain by far. You know, if you're going to apply the Bible story to God's people, we need to understand. Now, if you were going to build a temple where God wanted his temple built, and you're going to build Jerusalem, wouldn't it be a good idea to know where it was? If you're going to build, and it does tell us to build the temple in the end time, before Christ returns, we better know where to build it. Now, it is going to be God's people who build it. Is it that part of that city of Jerusalem in the Middle East? How are we going to build it there? The Jews control part of it and the Arabs control part of it. It's going to be hard for God's people to do anything there, isn't it? Just, just think about it. Let's say you want to build a house. Don't you think you'd better find a clue as to where you want to build it? Now you have this goal. I'm going to build myself a house. Are you going to build it in China or Brazil or Germany or the United States? You better figure out which continent you want it on. And then if you decide you want to build it in the United States, you better figure which state you want it in. Because if you don't decide, it'll be hard to do. You might better decide which county, and you may have to go out and look around and find the right piece of land. And you have to buy it. You have to obtain it before you can actually build your house. Decisions have to be made. Our God's people in the end time have to grow in grace and in knowledge of God and his purpose, what he wants, what he wants done, and even if you figure out what he wants done, You've got to figure out where it is, or you can't go do it. Didn't David say in the Psalms, I will search out, I will not give rest to my eyes, nor slumber to my head, until I find a habitation for the eternal. And then it goes on to say that he wants to inhabit Zion and Jerusalem. Abraham, I mean, David wanted to be sure <laughs> the right spot. We had better be sure we have the right spot. We will flee from the true Jerusalem to the true place of safety. Now, wouldn't it be nice to know where the real Judea is, the real Jerusalem is, and where the real place of safety is? Don't you think you'd have a leg up if you knew where to go, where to be, and then where to go from there? I would think so. We better prove these things one way or another, hadn't we? If I'm leading you astray, you better find somebody who can get you to the right spot at the right time. Well, we're taking a different look at some of these things, a deeper look and a more specific look than Herbert Armstrong had. He had the general flow correct, but he missed some specifics. It wasn't time. He wasn't building the latter temple. He was building the former temple, both physically 
the house to the great God, and spiritually, worldwide church of God. But that got destroyed because of us and because of the leadership. Now we've got to redo it. We've got to do it better this time. We've got to do it right this time. If we're going to do it right this time, we've got to find the right place. And I have to be better than I was. Okay? I have to look at me, and I have to say, Daryl had better be a whole lot better than he was when he was in Worldwide. Because when God spit me out, I wasn't tasteful to him. Now I'd better be different, hadn't I? If God's going to take that same thing that he spit out, up off the ground, put it back in his mouth, don't you think it had better taste a lot different? How many of you have puked and reached in the toilet and picked up some and sucked it down after you got done? It would have to be a whole lot different for me to do that. I usually spit and flush just as fast as I can. That's a terrible analogy. But it's the one God uses, isn't it? Now that we're all awake, let's continue. All right, let's see. So he started moving. Let's go to chapter 14. We didn't get here last time. It came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of all these places, and Tidal, king of nations. But these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, with Beersha, king of Gomorrah. Now, this is the area that Abraham was in, or Abram was in. Verse 3, all these were joined together in the vale of Sidon, which is the Salt Sea. Ah, okay, here we are, back in the Middle East. we got the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea there. I guess I was wrong about all this. Hey, i got an idea. There's a place in Ephraim today that has a much bigger Salt Sea than that one over there. There's a great salt lake up here in the land of Ephraim. I suspect, near the land of Canaan. So, here we are back in Ephraim again, if you look upon the Great Salt Lake, or the Little Salt Lake up here near uh, Cedar City, that Parowan, right there on the map, it's called the Little Salt Lake. It isn't always full now, but after rains it is, and it's very salty. So here, we're two to one better than... Israel over there, aren't we? We got the Great Salt Lake and the Little Salt Lake. All they got is one Dead Sea. Two to one in favor of here. I suspect the Salt Sea here was probably the Little Salt Lake because it's very near what I believe is Jerusalem today, or was Jerusalem then. Don't forget in this equation to go back to Isaiah 61 where it says Jerusalem and the cities of Judah would be desolate for many generations. And if you read the history books, there's never been a time when that Jerusalem in the Middle East has been desolate for many generations. Hasn't happened. So wherever you find the true Jerusalem, you have to have a place that has been desolate for many generations where men would not even pass through. Wasn't anything there that they'd want to see. 
They go around it. They go apart from it. That's what your Bible says. Isaiah 58 says that we would repair the waste places, heal the breaches in the walls. Okay. Uh, it talks about all these peoples living there. I don't know that we need to go through all of that and read it verse by verse. That'll put us right back to, to sleep. But uh, the upshot of this story in chapter 14, verse 11, is these people that we're talking about in verses 1 through 10 took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went their way. So they made war against Sodom and Gomorrah, took everything they had, spoiled them, and left. And they took a lot. Abraham, Abraham, Abram's brother's son, his nephew, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Now this underlines what I just said a little earlier about it appearing the Sodom and Gomorrah were near an area like the Garden of the Lord and were well watered. Now remember, when Abram and Lot parted, Lot went to the best land, the most watered land, didn't he? Well, where did he live? Sodom. Sodom was the best land in the area, the most well-watered, the place that Lot chose to go, even better than what Abram had. Did you ever see that before? I never did. I didn't even put it together until this second is reading it right there in the Bible. He dwelt in Sodom. And we already read. That was, he took the best. That does not fit. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. They try to feed us in the Middle East. That is some of the most desolate land on the face of the earth. I mean that specific spot. And everything around it. So they took everything, including Lot, and his goods, and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. So he had allies in the area. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, now it was actually his nephew, but it's, he's listed as a brother, same family, as opposed to these Gentiles that were around them. He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them to Dan. Now, when Abram did this, there was no such thing as Dan. Dan had not been born yet. He was way down the line still, as a son of Jacob. But this was written by Moses later on, and he says that the era they went to was that land which would become Dan. So anyone reading it later on would understand what he was talking about. Well, it's an interesting thing that this land that contained Sodom and Gomorrah, which was a well-watered area, also contained Dan, part of Israel, one of the tribes of Israel, would establish itself when they went into the promised land Across the Jordan River, the part of it would be given to Dan. 
So it places the promised land and Dan and a well-watered area and the land where Abram stood and would give to his seed, which included Dan and then those who were to come later. And it says in Deuteronomy, we would understand it in the latter days. But up till now, we haven't understood it in the latter days. But now I think we're beginning to. This whole area was the promised land, part of which would be given to Dan when they did cross the river several generations down the line. Uh, pursued them to Dan, and he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, pursued them into Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. Well, wherever this is, it also places Damascus. It's in Syria today, they think. Was that the true Damascus over there? If that's not the promised land, and this is, then there had to be a Damascus here at the time. But if this is the Fertile Crescent, the beginning of civilization, all peoples came from here and later went there, instead of coming from there to here. So they were all here originally. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. So he got all the goodies and the people and brought them back. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer uh, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. Now you can go to uh, Hebrews 7 and see very clearly who Melchizedek was. That was Christ. It says there in Hebrews 7 that he was without father, without mother, without descent, without number of days. Melchizedek was Christ. Don't let anybody kid you that he was a human being. The Bible says very clearly he had not father, mother, or descent. He had to be God. So he brought forth bread and wine, and that knocks the Baptist in the head about drinking wine. we got lots of things going on here. <clears throat> and he was the priest of the Most High God. So he was the high priest, and he was the Son of God, or he later would become the Son of God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Christ came and he, he told Abram, well, you've done the right thing and you're going to be blessed of God. You have been blessed of God. And what did Abram do then? Blessed be the Most High God which has delivered your enemies into your hand. Don't think you did this, Abram. God in heaven, the Most High God, fought for you. And he gave him tithes of all. Abram understood that God is God and he was man and that he owed a tenth to God. Now, there are those who will try to tell you today, well, yeah, tithing, well, there are those who say tithing isn't in effect and those who don't put all the scriptures together and maybe take one. And then it's very popular now to say that it was only of agricultural produce. Well, that's not the way Abraham looked at it, was it? Was this a produce of the garden or the field? No, this was the spoils of war. It included clothes, it included jewelry, 
It included wheat and corn. It included horses and asses and camels. It included everything that they had taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. <coughs> and Abram saw fit to tithe of that to God. Now, who is Abraham in the course of history and the history of God's people? Abraham is the father of the faithful. That's who he is. That's what he's called in Hebrews 11. <coughs> and we are told that we are to look to our fathers. And the father of all of us is Abraham. What did he do? He made peace by sending Lot away and letting him choose where he would go and then staying away from him. And when it came time to report to the king of Sodom and Gomorrah on returning the goods, he said, wait a minute, I'm giving a tenth to God. Now all this had belonged to Sodom, had it not? The people, the goods, everything. But when they had been stolen, they no longer belonged to those people. They belonged to the ones who had taken them. If you'd asked them, is this your stuff? They'd have said, yeah. So when Abraham, by an act of war, defeated those people and took what they had, they became his. To the victor go the spoils. In any war that is conducted, be it World War I or World War II, Whoever wins divides it up. Now, that's what happened after World War II, isn't it? You got the Russians and us together and the Britons, the Brits, and divided Europe up and divided, made an iron curtain between what would be Soviet on one side and American and British on the other side, and then we gave the autonomy back to those nations ourselves, whereas the Soviets decided the ones on their side better stay under their hat, in their tent. But that's the way it is. Now, what did Abram do here? The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. He was saying, okay, just let the people come back. Uh, you're the one that did this, so you keep the goods. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the eternal, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. He said, if I'm going to swear to anybody, it's going to be God, and I have sworn to God. That I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latch, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram was already rich, gold, silver, and cattle, remember? They'd come from God, and his allegiance was to God. I'll lift my hand to God. I said, I'm not going to take anything, but what did he do? He took one-tenth and gave it to God. He tithed before he gave it back. So Sodom, the king of Sodom, only got nine-tenths back. He didn't get it all back. Abram didn't take any to himself, but he made sure that God, who had delivered him and had made it possible for him to have what he had, he made sure God got that back. So he put God first, didn't he? And the king of Sodom second, and himself 
last. But I'm not going to take anything, save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me. So he was willing to give some to his allies, and that which the young men had eaten, he said, write it off. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, actually, I, I made a misstatement there when you read this. The king of Sodom didn't get 90% back. He got minus 10% and then minus whatever Abraham paid or Abram paid to his allies and what the young men had eaten. But the rest of it he got back. Whether that was 70 or 80% or 60%, we don't know because we don't know what he gave the allies. But Abram put God first, his allies second, King of Solomon third, and himself last. So there is a lesson for us. Well, let's see. Let's, uh, let's, I think we have time here if I hit 15 fairly quickly. After these things, the word of the eternal came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. So he had talked with Abram. He told him, I'm going to give you this, and wherever you walk, north, south, east, and west, it's yours. Now he came to him in a vision, and God often does that with those that he is working with, as through history. I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. So he's saying in a vision to him, you look to me with the king of Sodom, keep looking to me. And Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? In other words, he says, I'll be your exceeding reward. And Abram looks around and he says, I don't even have any children. <laughs> what good is the reward going to do me? I'm going to die, and it'll all be wasted. I don't even have a kid, except the heir in my house is one of my servants' child. I don't have a kid of my own. And Abraham said, Behold, to me you have given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is my heir, one that is household servant's kid. And behold, the word of the Eternal came to him, saying, This shall not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be your heir. Now Sarai was barren, as it says in the end of chapter 11. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if you be able to number them, and he said to him, so shall your seed be. Just like looking at the great panoply of the Milky Way and all the stars. That's the way your seed will be. And he believed in the eternal. And then he, God, counted it to him for righteousness. Just simply believing God is counted as righteousness. If you really believe God, you will do what he says. You will follow his way. You will trust him. Now he's saying here, what is God saying? He's saying, trust me. You look around and your wife's barren and you got all these little kids running around that are your servants' children. That's all you got for an heir. And God said, they're going to come from your own seed. And they're going to be like these stars you see. Must have been a vision at night. And Abraham believed it, or Abram believed it. He just simply believed it. Hadn't happened in years and years, but he believed it. See, what, what is that? That's trust. That's belief. 
you say it, you'll do it. He said to him, I am the Eternal that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. Now what are we talking about here? We're talking about Abram's seed. Those who would number as the stars. And this land you're in, where you're having this dream, is going to be given to your children that will number as the stars. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Now he believed him, but he also wanted to—he wanted some assurance. How, how am I going to know this? And he said to him, Take me a heifer three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took them unto all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds he divided not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. So he's having, he was asleep, he was having this dream. But it was a nightmare. A horror of great darkness. Remember what it said about the uh, darkness that came upon the Egyptians? It was so dark that it terrified them. Well, he had this same kind of horror in this dream. And he said to Abram, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall it come out with great substance. So he's giving a bit of prophecy here. He's telling him, you're going to have a lot of people, but they're going to go into a land, into captivity for 400 years. We won't argue the 400 to the 430. There is an explanation to that. But the point is, your seed will go into captivity 400 years. And then I'll deliver them, and I'll judge the nation. They come out, and they'll come out with great substance. Did that happen? Moses led them out of Egypt. They spoiled the Egyptians and took great substance when they came out roughly 400 years later. But in the fourth generation they shall come here again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. They're going to come back to this land that you're going to inherit. And it came to pass, and when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. So he had the animals divided up, and God had a miracle there that there was a smoking furnace and a burning lamp. May have burned them up as a burnt offering, for that matter. In the same day, the Eternal made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So, a historian would say that was from the Nile River in Egypt to Euphrates, there at the edge of Iraq, or in Iraq, where ancient Babylon was. But that doesn't fit. His people have not gone from that Nile to that Euphrates. Never have. Never will. Got to be talking about a different Nile and a different Euphrates. If the original Egypt was over here, then the river of Egypt has to be a river that is here. Now we've read reports, and some of you have gone on the internet to check it out, of a, an Egyptian city built back in the wall of the Grand Canyon. 
Was the Colorado River the river of Egypt? There's someone who believes the Severe River up here was the Nile. Maybe it was. I'm not sure which. But there are apparently artifacts in a city that is hidden, and you can't go there because the U.S. government has shut down part of the Grand Canyon. Why'd they shut it down? There wasn't anything to see. What if it just cliffs like the rest of it? Why would you shut it down? I think the very fact that you can't go there proves there must be something there they don't want you to see. It would blow their idea of history. You know, when somebody says, you can't go there, doesn't it make you curious? What are they trying to hide? <laughs> Wasn't anything there. No point. The Greeks called the Atlantic Ocean the river Euphrates. It talks about far beyond the river in Nehemiah, beyond the river. Took Ezra, what was it, three months roughly, to get across the river from that Babylon, which had been established later, back to this land where they were to build the temple in the promised land, the real Jerusalem. There's no way it can take you three months, two and a half, three months, whatever it was, to go from that city of Babylon on the Euphrates to that Jerusalem. I think I figured it out. It's only, what, 1.6 miles a day or something like that. With camels and horses, you go a lot faster than that. You'd just have to dilly-dally. You'd have to vacation to take that long. It'd be hard to go that slow. You can walk a lot faster than that. A man can walk 20 miles a day without too much problem. So if it took that long, it must have been going further. You can cross in a sailing vessel, the Atlantic Ocean. Well, the Greeks called the Atlantic Ocean the Euphrates. Where is the lost city of Atlantis or Atlantic? Where is the city that would be desolate for many generations? Was it across the Atlantic? Across the Euphrates. So when he said the river Nile, the river or the river of Egypt, that Nile was it a land, was it a river out here somewhere? And if the Atlantic Ocean was the Euphrates, he crossed it. And when Abram stood there, he was giving him from the west to the north, the south, and the east in America, the land that had been Egypt's land before Egypt moved over there, and the land that went all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. I don't know whether Abram ever walked over the whole thing or not, but he said, every direction as far as you walk, it's yours and your seeds forever. Where could he have walked if he had been here? Say in the American Southwest, where there is desert, and they did have some desert. He could have walked as far as the East Coast, the West Coast. He could have walked uh, south to the Gulf of Mexico or I could actually walk through to the tip of South America, but that isn't where Abraham's, Abraham's seed are, so it must have stopped going to the south and to the north at a certain point. And how would you determine that point today? 
by where Abraham's seed are. They aren't in Mexico or Central America. They're here. So that in itself shows the limits that God had in mind. But as far as he would walk, north, south, east, or west, and you'd have to get pretty old work at it to get all the way across this land, wouldn't you? Back and forth, north and south and east and west. Forrest Gump or not. The Kenites, Kenizzites, and Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaims, uh, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Because I'm giving you all this land that all these peoples possess. Now, where were they? You've got to know where you're going before you can figure out what to do. So I think we need to keep after that, and we'll see, we'll see more of that as we go through here. But we also see the character things, and I want to, of course, emphasize those, because even if you have the right place, if you're not living as Abram lived, and finding a way to make peace, or part ways, or if you're not tithing, then you're not living as the father of the faithful did. And God holds him up as the example for us to follow. So we better pay attention to what Abram did here. Remember what Zechariah at the beginning of this sermon said? The former prophets came to your fathers and they wouldn't obey. They wouldn't do the things that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the other fathers of the faithful did. So what he's saying is don't be like them. They got your fathers by the neck. But the real fathers you had better pay attention to are the ones that are listed in Hebrews 11. The primary and first one, Abraham. So whatever you find Abraham doing, you better pay attention to. Because he's the father of the faithful. Now, if I'm faithful, that means I'm following the father of the faithful, doesn't it? Now, that's why we're going through this series, because God said, look to those men. Turn the hearts of the children, that's us, to the fathers, the faithful ones. Pick out those in the Bible that were faithful, and Paul did that in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews, Hebrews 11. He picked out the faithful ones, whether it was Rahab the harlot, or David, or Gideon, or Abraham. But he gives more space there, about a third or more of that chapter, to Abraham and Sarah, and more to Isaac and Jacob than to anyone else. Because they are the primary of the fathers that we are to look to. And God recorded their lives here. Didn't work out too well to lie. Uh, he probably slept on the couch that night about the Egyptians. But when it comes to these making peace, or tithing to God, or various other things we're going to come to, we better look there. Very, very important. All right, let's stop there for today.